finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. So, this is uh, our second episode for December. It's our second uh, secular Santa Claus spectacular, and we're talking about the 2015 comic uh, by Grant Morrison, uh, with writing by Grant Morrison, and art by Dan Mora, and letters by Ed Dukeshire, uh, called Klaus. When I say art by Dan Mora, that means like he did the whole shebang. Uh, inks, colors, he pencils. He won an award, too, for this. Uh, understandable. The art's really good. He yeah. has a very sort of sleek, modern, action, comics style uh, that works really well for this. His colors are really nice, too. I think they're like that's an underrated element of this book. Because he does a sort of nice middle ground... Between sort of sleek, mainstream, I, I use sleek twice, I meant slick, mainstream, superhero, digital colors, and something a little bit more painterly and storybook style. And there's a couple of points where it goes into a full-on, like, psychedelic rainbow freakout. Uh, but yeah, I really dug his art throughout this. He's done a lot of stuff with the for the Power Ranger comics from I think also Boom, the same same company that published this. He did he is not the artist for Victor Laval's Destroyer, but I think he did some character designs for that. Yeah, I can see a little bit of the same style. So this is I guess what they bill it as an origin story of Santa Claus, but as a superhero. Yeah, basically. Uh so Grant Morrison is they've never read anything by Grant Morrison. No, right? this was my first Grant Morrison. I think I eased myself in with an easy one. This is surprisingly, despite being like his weird Santa Claus book, is actually a very good introduction to him, I believe. It's got a lot of the hallmarks that make Grant Morrison such a beloved writer. He might be he's certainly my favorite comic book writer. He very well might be my favorite writer across all of fiction. That's a pretty bold statement to make, but he's he's real he's very good, and he's kind of the last leg of this this trinity of what you would call like the British invasion writers. We've covered uh, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, and Graham Morrison is a contemporary of those two guys who came in in sort of the same wave of British writers into DC Comics in the eighties that kind of laid the groundwork for Vertigo Comics. And so his kind of, you can kind of, the sort of three core pillars of that Vertigo style are Sandman, Swamp Thing, and then kind of a shared pillar of Morrison's Doom Patrol and Animal Man runs. Oh, okay. So we read the first seven issues, which I guess are compiled into one volume. And then there's four additional one-offs. Yeah, so they, they've they've done a one shot each. I mean, this is a complete thing. It's not for it's not the first seven issues of an ongoing run. This is a just a seven issue miniseries. That's a complete story. But they've done annual one shots every Christmas season since then, um, which are good too. And I would recommend them. They're not, you know, essential. This is is a completely pretty complete story that you don't really need any further context to. They do explain some stuff that's sort of left hanging by this that we'll get to later, I okay. guess. Well, let's get started. So this is Claus, as Nate mentioned. 
It's um, set in this sort of vaguely medieval, slightly Viking-inspired time period. And it takes place in a town called Grimsvig. Yeah. It's like a, a Tolkienian mythic past kind of thing going on here. It's not set in any specific time period, but like there's castles and axes and everyone has a beard. Yeah, it's kind of like what you would think of as like the origin of Santa Claus. So it takes place in this town. It's a mining town that's being run by um, this sort of... Tyrannical Lord Magnus. Right, who's married. He has a wife named Dagmar and he has a son named Jonas. And they celebrate a holiday called the Yuletide. And coinciding with this year's Yuletide celebration is a visit by the king. Mm-hmm. And then Magnus, who's an evil overlord, cancels this Yuletide, which I think I'm going to keep saying Christmas, but it's actually Yuletide. Mm-hmm. So he can make everyone work in the coal mines. Yeah, this, so the Yuletide thing. This We talked uh, in the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, our previous episode, about how much that avoided dealing directly with Christianity. And this one goes even further. I don't think the term saint is used, or if it is, it's very oblique there's no direct reference to saint nicholas which uh there is a brief reference to saint nicholas in the life and adventures of santa claus and i think it uses the yuletide term to avoid the fact that christmas is literally christ mass right i think it's sort of i mean it kind of hints that there's this sort of occult magic so that would sort of be you know contrary to the whole theme of like a christian christmas well, yeah, and it goes pretty pretty far even from just, hey, there's some occult magic into some uh, full-on sci-fi territory later on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's when it gets good. So Klaus, the titular Klaus, our, our hero of this story, he is a big burly guy with a big beard who is like a fur nomadic fur trapper living in the wilds. And he shows up at Grimsvig. Uh, and reveals that he's been there before. He remembers it being a much happier town. And it, the town is almost completely empty because Magnus is making everyone, every adult male, work basically to death in the mines for some unknown cause. Now, just as a side note, don't you think that this version of Claus looks a lot like Viggo Morganson if he was maybe 10 years younger? Yes, I agree. It's crazy that this hasn't been made into a movie yet. I think. Like, the structure of this story is very cinematic. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised that we haven't gotten, like, I don't know, whoever is the current buff guy that gets to be in movies for some reason. Whoever the current day Sam Worthington is, I'm surprised he hasn't been in this movie. Exactly. Jason Momoa, he could do it. Yeah, definitely. You, I mean, there's one thing... So one of the guys from Vikings? Yes. But there's one thing about this clause that's different from the life and adventures of Santa Claus is this clause has massive guns. Yeah. And, and they're on display the whole entire... And he is not afraid to beat ass. <laughs> no. He is, like, largely pacifistic. He doesn't, like, want to do violence, but this is, like, he is... I think the big thing going on here that, like, we're gonna touch on is this is a Superman story. Oh, definitely. This is, this is Graham Morrison doing a very deliberate aligning of Superman and Santa Claus. So... Grant Morrison wrote All-Star Superman, which is the best Superman story of all time. And he has this very famous story about how he was inspired to write that because he met a Superman cosplayer at, I think, San Diego Comic-Con. 
who was this like perfect, peaceful, beatific representation of the ideal of Superman. And that like clicked the character in his head and he wrote this like 12 issue exploration of the essence of Superman. And I feel like this has a similar vibe to me where it feels like he must have had some sort of revelation of like, oh, Santa Claus and Superman are like the same character. And I can write a great Santa Claus story if I write him like Superman. And so that's that similar vibe where it's like Superman doesn't want to punch anyone. But when he got a punch, he will do a punch. Yeah, I think that's true. So Claus comes in, he tries to trade his furs to the town. He discovers that things have really changed. It's a very dismal, um, sad town. And he ends up getting in a fight with the guard because they They accuse him of being a werewolf. Right. (laughs) Nash. So he gets thrown out of the town, and this is when you re- we meet his companion. Right, wait, hold on. So they try to take they take his they're going to take his furs, and he's okay, he's will let them do that to avoid a fight. But then they see a kid playing with a rock, and they go to accost the kid and strike the kid, and that makes him turn on the guards and start fighting him, and then they run him out of town. Right, and then he gets thrown out of the town, and then you meet his companion. This giant white wolf named Lily that he, I guess Klaus pals around with. Yes, she's his, his friend and companion. And she saves him from the guards because they're going to try and kill him in the snow. He's got like his arm... Wait, is it this one that happens? He has like his arms tied behind his back? Yes. And uh, this weirdly is another Superman reference. Because in Grant Morrison's other big superhero comic, which is his initial run on action comics... At the start of the New 52, he he give, he reinvents Crypto the Superdog, Superman's canine companion, as a giant white wolf. That makes sense. So they're, they, Superman and Klaus both have big uh, wolves that hang out with them. We also, in this issue, we get to meet Dagmar and Magnus, and we realize that Jonas is this really spoiled boy who has had his father confiscate all of the toys in the town to be given to him. Which he despises as Right, because he doesn't know how to entertain himself. He's, he's just a bad, in quotation marks, boy, according to what we see of him. Yeah, what ends up being kind of a thesis statement on Jonas is that, like, he's the way he is because he never has never had to, through interaction with others, learn any sort of humility. And then Dagmar, his wife, is very aloof. And this is where we're also in the sequence where we meet Jonas's, uh, Magnus's family. Magnus makes his first reference to the voice. Yeah. There's some kind of voice in the pit that he is concerned about. Also, I think this is when we get to see his library and it looks like it's made out of like muscle and flesh. Yeah, it's a very organic looking library. So we we also learn at this time that Klaus lives in the woods. He has like a little cottage in the woods. Mm-hmm. And he is in tune with the sort of spiritual nature of the forest. Yeah, so he, he hunts and he kills an elk. And then uh, he makes a magic healing broth out of it. And he's like, there's this part... With Lily, the wolf, where he's like, you can't have any of this broth, it's magic. Stick to your bones. In the end, we're all bones. 
which is a very fatalistic line. Uh, but then he he's like, let's play a tune for the Shining family. Right. And he takes out a flute, and he plays a song, and these things appear. These, like, forest spirits, I guess, is what they initially seem to be. And they're these, like, glowing, strange, almost, like, skeletal creatures with alien proportions. Yeah, they have huge eyes, and they sort of have, like, these sort of elongated heads, and they come out of the woods, and they start to commune with Klaus. And this is what you were talking about. There's, like, a double page of, like, this psychedelic, like, pastel rainbow that's sort of circling around him and enveloping Yeah, him. we're seeing things through the eyes of the Shining family, and everything is awash with this vibrant, psychedelic color, and the music is, like, visualized. It's, it's as solid as anything else, and they seemingly like enter Klaus's body and possess him or compel him to make toys. Yeah, because you can't really tell what they're doing. They just have these sort of close-up little um, squares where you see a close-up of the knife and you see a close-up of him cutting wood. So you don't really know what's happening. And then it's that's over and it shows him waking up. And then he looks around and he's just created all of these toys, which is kind of different from... Uh, the other Santa Claus, we're going to be comparing those yeah. two, where he sort of invents toys. Toys already exist because they're mad that Jonas has the toys and the guards are like, kid, you're not allowed to have toys. Uh, this last image, this last page where Klaus is standing astonished in front of his voice is a really beautiful image. The colors go back to quote unquote normal, but it's just like him in the dawn light with snow all in his hair and beard. And that's like a visual thing throughout the book. His hair and beard gets progressively whiter. That's one of the things I liked about this sort of aesthetic style of Klaus was that every issue ends with a full page. It's almost like Swamp Thing where there's this sort of, it's a variant cover, but it's just a full page panel that Mm. shows you sort of like the cliffhanger for the next issue. Yeah. I really like that. I also like that it's sort of very subtle nods to sort of like the iconography of santa claus like he has a red hood he has a red cape that he wears when he fights the deer and he's pulling the deer back he's covered in the blood red blood of the reindeer and he's pulling it along he has a sled i mean there's kind of like this the traditional symbols of santa claus are depicted in claus but in a way that sort of fits in with the story yeah and so I want to talk about the Shining family because I think I picked up on the sort of reference joke maybe of what they are. So they're the elves. They're his version of the elves. They compel him to make the toys. They're these mythical beings. But they're the twist here is that they are not just elves. They're machine elves. Oh, okay. Do you know what machine elves are? No. Okay, so for you and any listeners that don't know, machine elf is a term that was coined by Terrence McKenna. And for people who don't know, Terrence McKenna is what you would describe as a psychonaut. He's kind of a Timothy Leary figure who did a lot of writing about psychedelic drugs and philosophy and stuff in the 90s. He was very influential in 90s rave culture. And I think that was a scene that Grant Morrison was involved in. He's... Gary Morrison is like Scottish, mm-hmm. and he sort of like came up around that time. He also claims to be a wizard. Yes. 
This is also important to what I'm about to talk about. Okay. So machine elves are these this sort of category of vision or hallucination that are common for people to experience when they're on DMT or other similar psychedelic drugs. And they're these sort of strangely shaped, hard to perceive, seemingly benevolent beings that appear to you. And they sort of present themselves as being these kind of like higher dimensional creatures with like greater awareness than humanity. And they're friendly and nice. And they do this thing where they jump in and out of your body. Like we see here with them entering Klaus's body. And they are called machine elves because they make things. And McKenna very explicitly compares the things... They make these like impossible objects. And McKenna very explicitly compares them to toys. Impossible living toys, which we will see later... Klaus's toys are magic and come to life. And then after making them through music, which we see music there, and demonstrating it to the person seeing the machine elves, the machine elves will compel the person to also uh, partake in this act of ecstatic, impossible creation. That's it's almost like this sort of subliminal burst of creativity, mm -hmm. sort of like this artistic inspiration. Well, yeah, there's lots of, like, some people will be like, yeah, the machine elves are real, and they're a higher dimensional being that we can only perceive when we're whacked out on psychedelics, and some people will be like, they're our brain trying to process these, like, sudden feelings that you get when you're on these drugs, and so on and so forth. But I think that's the reference going on here, is Morrison has reinterpreted the elves as machine elves and it works surprisingly well you don't need that knowledge to to get what's going on here i think that's really interesting because there's a sort of history with like psychedelics used in like religious ceremonies mm -hmm. where there's a similar motif that goes on there's this like spirit guide or this you know entity that helps you align yourself for some type of creative and spiritual growth, which I think, I mean, despite the fact that he's a man who's fighting people and doing all these sort of actiony things, he is like sort of on a journey of personal growth. Yeah, yeah. And so there's another thing going on here too, where I know this is going to sound crazy after the speech I just gave, uh, but this is where things get weird. Morrison has, you mentioned him being a wizard. Morrison does a lot of self-mythologizing. There's a lot of, of mythology around Morrison as a creator. There's the whole chaos magic thing, and another big part of it is the Timbuktu story. Morrison has a story that he has told several times. He tells it, I think, most in-depth in his, like, sort of, in his book Super Gods, which is kind of his, like, memoir-slash-philosophical analysis of the concept of superheroes. But the story goes that he was, after... He started to get a lot of success as a comic writer in the 90s or the late 80s. He was in Timbuktu and not, supposedly not on any psychedelic drugs, though he does admit to smoking some pot that day. Mm -hmm. And he experienced what you would probably describe as a religious experience. And it goes that he was visited by these amorphous, benevolent beings who claim to be from a higher level of consciousness and from a higher dimensional order than us who showed him that 
all of reality is a gestalt organism made up of all of the people and ideas and matter that is inside reality and that it is our purpose and responsibility as people who live in reality to do good and improve the world in order to improve the health of this gestalt organism of which we are a part. And there's also this whole thing about them showing him what it looks like to look down from a higher dimension at stuff in a lower dimension. And he talks a lot about how comic books being this two-dimensional art form are essentially a simulation of what it looks like for a four-dimensional being to view our three-dimensional world. That they would be able to page through time the way that we page through a comic book. And that his charge after having this vision is to extol this truth through his artwork, uh, which is comic books, which he has. And so there's this recurring uh, motif. There's lots of recurring motifs throughout all of Morrison's work. But this idea that a well, that this hero is visited and helped by these beings from another dimension uh, in order to do good to make the world better comes up a lot. He does it here with Klaus and the Shining Family. He does it in his Animal Man run with his reinterpretation of the aliens that give Animal Man his powers. He does it in his Superman comics with Mr. Mixie Spidlick and the Fifth Dimensional Imps. And so this is, an, the, here the Shining Family are another recursion of this uh, benevolent higher dimensional being that helps the hero. Well, I mean, that's extremely interesting and it does explain a lot, but I don't think it's anything different or weirder than sort of the post-psychedelic philosophy that was coming out after the beat generation. Yeah. I mean, you think about like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Hunter S. Thompson and his open experiences of talking about his like trips and things like that and how he connected that mind expansion with his burst of creativity. Yeah, so I there's... feel like there's a there's a history of that in literature and art that sort of explains these sort of big bursts of like avant-garde mm-hmm. creativity that happen. The thing that I always think about when I read his story or think about the Timbuktu story is William Blake, who also claimed to have visions not from higher dimensional beings but from God. And there's like uh, Allen Ginsberg has written about having this sort of religious experience where he saw this network of light like connecting everything. And he, in writing about that, explicitly connects it to William Blake's visions. And But there's also this thing where Morrison is very cheeky about uh, fiction and metafiction and sort of like these postmodern ideas. So it's always very ambiguous as whether or not did the Timbuktu story really happen? If it happened, was it just a psychedelic trip if it didn't happen does it matter that it didn't happen did he make it have had happened by telling it so many times and working it into all of these comics so it's always like but i think you never know really where you stand which is kind of the point i think the concept of being in in an altered state that makes you more permeable to this sort of avant-garde thinking that happens a lot in human culture it happens in a lot of religions it happens in a lot of uh you know creative communities and there are people that are sort of preconditioned to have these sort of the we know 
that people's brains work different ways. I mean, that's science. That's not philosophy. So having a brain that works a different way and fueling with something that would make your brain work even differently Mm. can lead to these sort of mind-expanding concepts. And I think it's not unheard of. So if this is what Grant Morrison believes and it affects his art in a positive way, then more to better for people who who read his works and are inspired by them. Oh, yeah. It's definitely positive. I mean, if we take it all completely at face value, then the end result of this whole thing is that it's compelled him to make art about how, you know, we need to work together to make the world a better place. And that's like a net good. But I mean, I mean, talk about William Blake. Years and years and years have gone by and people are still affected by his artwork, by his writing, about his life, and are just sort of inspired by the works of William Blake. Yeah. How many other artists and writers of that time do we even care about? Yeah, I also think it's not a coincidence that I, I mean, I connected Morrison, Ginsburg, and Blake, and uh, almost said spoiler alert, but like, <laughs> you know, those are my three favorite writers of yes. all time. Like, there's all of their works are extremely important to me, and I know that Ginsburg's a very has a complicated and messy legacy, and he was maybe not a great person personally, and William Blake probably wasn't either. Morrison seems like a really good guy, though. But you know what? I mean, we talk a lot about the sort of American males of literature. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's a certain type of personality that is is creative and is has a problematic personality. Yeah. I just want to say, though, I think it's really cool and kind of funny that we have this tradition that probably starts with, like, you know, shaman having visions of, like, the earth spirit and runs through, like, Ezekiel talking with an angel to Allen Ginsberg, or to William Blake seeing God, and now runs all the way to this story that takes that and makes it into Santa's elves. <laughs> so let's move on to issue two, because we've talked a lot about issue one so far. Okay, so issue two starts with Klaus sneaking back into the town. He wants to deliver the toys to the children he sees this poster of lord magnus and he sort of defaces it and then this outrages magnus who confiscates the toys there's a lot of very throughout the town we see it in the first issue too there are these very like v for vendetta e which i think is a deliberate reference uh propaganda posters of magnus's face yeah, and I i mean, I pointed that out when we were talking about this before the podcast. But he also defaces it specifically with a rune as a symbol to mean sort of resistance or, you know, to show to the people, the town, and to the children that there's still some hope. Yeah, and it's the rune for joy. And we'll talk about this a little bit, but I think the maybe the coolest thing this comic does is the recontextualization of joy as an act of rebellion and as something radical because joy is a sort of purposeless emotion it's this feeling of like positivity without necessarily any action tied to it which makes it in a capitalist society in which work is valued above all else and one's work is tied to one's humanity uh it makes expressing joy 
a kind of radical act, a, an act of rebellion against the the coerced labor. I think we see that now. I think this is sort of a reaction to that, what's going on in society now. There's this um, re-importance on the value of like self-care and then there's this sort of movement for comfort and for a moving away of like industrial design and moving towards like a more soft and like heartfelt style. And I think it's kind of showing. It's the same thing here. I mean, they're living in a town that's completely industrial and it's even more industrial because they can't celebrate anything they can only work in the mines. Yeah. I think it's important to note, though, that this isn't like a hope punk thing. Ugh. Uh, like, that self-care stuff can go too far. What's important about this joy as an act of rebellion is it's not Klaus doing something that makes himself feel good. It's him doing something without ask for reward or compensation that makes the community feel good. I think it's interesting, too, and I think this is because it's he's supposed to be Santa Claus, but... The children really, like, latch on to this sort of his nocturnal, like, rebellion. Yeah. And they start to call him, like, the Euler Nice, which means, I guess means Yuletide Spirit. Yeah. And they start to see him as a symbol for, like, a change that's happening. And then the children start to get excited about it. Yeah. And he, uh, he Batmans around the city, avoiding the guards, delivering these toys. Uh, there's one part where he gets the drop on a guard and puts him in a snowman. Yes, I do like that. And then I guess this is a point where another important part that happens now is we see that one of the toys that Klaus makes is this bird that flies around. Yeah. And then Dagmar sees that bird and it reminds her of her childhood. And I think at that point she realizes who is bringing the toys. She's at least starting to put it together. Yeah. I think we also get another clue, I think, in this issue. It's very subtle. There's a... Not very subtle. It's kind of subtle. There's a part where we see a guard in the background who looks like Santa Claus. And as we start to put together that, like, Santa Claus's uniform and the Grimsvig guard's uniform are similar... Well, yeah, we learned that. And that's our clue into Klaus's identity. We learned that the town's colors are red and white, and the guards wear the red hood as a Mm. symbol of honor. I think what was interesting, what I was saying about the children and their sort of, they're beginning to start this sort of movement, is they have all their toys, and they know that they're not supposed to have their toys, so instead of hiding inside their houses, they all go outside, Mm. and they start playing with their toys in view of Magnus and in view of... Of the guards, and they're not afraid. Yeah. And then this issue ends with uh, the guards cornering Magnus, uh, cornering Klaus with a pack of dogs. And there's another big, big cliffhanger. I think this is also another full page where it's like uh, Klaus with all the dogs around him. It's him. He's he's on the top of the buildings, and he has a giant sword. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He has a big, then, big old sword. Yeah, and the snow is falling, and his cape is red, and you realize he's... He's trapped in the town, and the dogs are chasing him. Yeah. And then issue three starts with uh, Lily showing up, and it's this great moment where she doesn't do anything. She just shows up, and that's enough to cow all the dogs in the submission. Because apparently she's very big for a wolf. I mean, she's an, yeah, she's enormous. She gets bigger, I think, later on in yeah. the story. But I think what's happening now is this sort of seeds of dissent has been sown 
and there's all these rumors about Klaus. He's stuck in the city, and there's all these rumors about him, and they're getting, of course, inflated and exaggerated. Yeah, they're calling him a ghost. They're saying he's a shapeshifter. I think the werewolf thing comes up again because that gets mixed up with the story of his wolves showing up to save him. Uh, there's a is... very Batman panel where he's on the top of the chimney, and you can see him from behind, and his cape is flowing, and he's looking over the town. Yeah, and another thing that comes up with Batman a lot, too, is like the urban legend around him, like starts to lend him a certain kind of power because people start to to become his in, his existence becomes ambiguous to people and that allows him to mythologize him into something greater than a man which he can use to his advantage this also comes up in morrison's superman stuff i think and his action comics run is like about superman's early days and i think it has like a sequence where there are like a bunch of newspaper stories where they're like getting stuff wrong about him and it's making him seem weirder than he actually is I think this is also the start where you start to realize that there's something going on with Lord Magnus. You realize that he is using some kind of grimoire to, like, contact some kind of voice that we can't tell if he is the only one who can hear the voice in the mind or if other people can. But he has this idea that he wants to free the voice because the voice is sort of feeding that sort of negative energy that he has. He's very, um, he's worried about if, the town likes him if his wife and his son are in love with him. He's paranoid about the arrival of the king. Right. Yeah, I think it becomes, as the story goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer that no one else can hear the voice except for Magnus. I think even when he mentions it in the first issue, the other person is like, the the what now? Uh, but yeah, it, it yells at him in an unknown language through the walls of the mine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's some kind of dark stuff going on with Magnus behind the scenes. Uh, and then the rest of this issue is mostly just like more of the guards trying to pursue Klaus, more of his mythology getting built up. I think this is when they start referring to him as the Santa. He goes down through the chimneys in this. Yeah, and, I th and this is also when the children start to write him letters mm -hmm. and burn them up in the fire, which is another thing, like writing your letter to Santa Claus and then the iconography of the chimney. And I think it also starts to hint now that Dagmar and Klaus and even Magnus have a past relationship. Yeah. But once again, Klaus goes back into the forest. He and Lily have some healing soup. And then this issue ends with this: the bells are ringing and everybody runs out. And they see a giant rune that he has caught, like shoveled into the snow. Yeah, it's the, it's the joy rune again. Is this when the tree thing happens? Yes, there's, he he slides down, he repels down on a rope like a true action Santa Claus. And he takes this sort of dead pine tree and he sets it on fire. And he just throws it through the town and the whole town sees this flaming Christmas tree coming down. Yeah. Also, I want to talk about how the visually the sequence with... Um... Magnus in the mine with his grimoire when he tries to talk to the voice. This is another thing where they sort of, where he switches up the coloring. The way that he sort of cross hatches the the cave, it looks like a um, like a uh, Dore illustration or like the artwork from like uh, Paradise Lost. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like Magnus and what happens to Magnus is the opposite of what's happening to Claus. Like when they show Magnus in the mine, 
there's this sort of pillar, this really pointy, um, almost like a church spire and it's dark and gloomy. And then it's, it, you know, it's counterpointed by this burning Christmas tree that Klaus throws down the, sh- down the town. Well, yeah. And they're both in communion with this, mis- these mysterious beings, but Klaus is in communion in the open, in the forest, in nature, with these things that we can see who are compelling him to help and give. And Magnus is in communion with something dark in the earth that's alone that only he can see that is compelling him to take from people. And they're slowly turning into total opposites of each other. But I think it's the same. I mean, in a lot of ways, Magnus and Klaus are almost the same, except they're consumed by different versions. Magnus is consumed by the dark and Klaus is consumed by the light. And I think in the middle is Dagmar. And that's how the issue ends. He comes in through the window and he... Klaus comes in through the window. Klaus comes in through the window. But meanwhile, there's a cut panel where you see Magnus and he says, this means war. And then you see the panel below it. Klaus shows up and he says, how long has it been, Dagmar? And then, you know, he's there. Uh, And then we get Klaus's origin story in the next issue. I like the like in the Life on Adventures of Santa Claus. He is a orphan. Yeah, he was abandoned on the ice in the ar- survived in the arms of his frozen mother, and he's taken back to Grimsvig, where he's raised in the town. And from like an early age, he he's like a craftsman. He makes the the wooden bird that that Dagmar has as a child. So we find out that he's actually being raised by Carl, the head of the guard. Mm-hmm. So he's being raised sort of by this very morally upright, very righteous, and all around good guy. And then the town is different. The Lord before Magnus is a very nice, just kind of liberal Lord. And the town is happy. It's very light. You can see all these white around. Mm-hmm. And, and then things just go downhill from there yeah so we see carl a little bit in the first couple issues very briefly he's still with a guard he's an older man and he's sort of like the voice of reason and morality who tries to keep the other guards in check who magnus has worked up into being these sort of fascistic bullies and it's clear that carl is like at odds with his duty to the organization of the guard and his own personal morality it's also through this origin story that we learn that magnus married into the lordship that dagmar is the lord's daughter and magnus sees power by marrying her and we get some glimpses of like it's a very um you know we get some glimpses of their childhood magnus is like like dark brooding child who's very jealous of klaus and dagmar's relationship he's a wholesome snow making snowman family making montage yeah magnus is very very snape yes uh here and Klaus is named Klaus because it means victory of the people which mm-hmm. i guess is prophetic yes so he befriends dagmar and magnus gets jealous and then at one point he makes her a wind-up bird so it's sort of hinted that even though he hasn't met the spirits in the woods mm-hmm. he has that inclination already yeah, and so we find out, then it cuts back to the present day, and we find out that Dagmar believes that Klaus killed her father. Right, because Magnus set him up. And he's been exiled since then. And we get more flashback. Klaus becomes a like a the hot, young, upstart in the guard. Magnus becomes an advisor and physician 
to the king. He does the classic, you know, here's your medicine. It's actually poison trick on the, the not the king, the lord, uh, and kills him. We get the sequence where the guards corner a uh, family, a pack of wolves and that they're going to take out who have been terrorizing the town. But Klaus finds the, the runt of the litter. It's very Jon Snow. and ba- he, Yeah, baby Lily. Yeah, she's very cute. Uh, in, when she's drawn as a baby. So we could get a lot of, like, Klaus is just and Klaus is kind and, like, really selling us on him being a good person. And then he takes the blame for poisoning the king and then as an act of, or the lord, and then as an act of mercy, he, instead of being killed, he's, like in the beginning of the comic, ran out into the woods with his arms tied behind his back to be exiled returning him to the cold and the snow from which he was born to which he will presumably die except because of his earlier act of kindness a giant wolf shows up and saves him i think yes and then i at at that point it cuts back to dagmar and you see her talking with jonas and then he's about to smash this i i couldn't tell if this is specifically some type of I don't know. I, I kept trying to puzzle out what the reference is here. He makes basically like a transformer for Jonas, this like robotic bug man toy, like an act, like an early action figure. And I could not puzzle out if there was any specific reference going on here. It feels like there is because the design is so specific and all the other toys are like a wooden bird, a wooden train. This is like very deliberate, but I don't know what it is. But I think this at this point... After Dagmar's conversation with Klaus and she realizes that Klaus did not kill her father, she starts to have this sort of change in her heart and a sort of change in her personality. And she's less like docile and passive and sort of demoralized. And then she starts to have this sort of relationship with Jonas where she realizes that the way that she has been treated by... Magnus and the way that she accepts the treatment is a reflection on why Jonas acts the way that he does. But I think it's important to note that Jonas is set up in the beginning of the story to be the symbol of what a bad kid is. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll get to what so, the actual comic's actual philosophy on that is. But yeah, then she goes to play with him and like basically teaches him about like playing with others and cooperation and like collaboration and imagination and it starts to sort of wear down this shell that this kid has built up around himself and his emotions but i think his behavior is like a defense mechanism that he uses to deal with his parents Mm -hmm. because his parents are sort of giving him a very negative sort of upbringing but yeah and i think there's this with them playing and the fact that this is like the start of Jonas's face turn. Uh, it's an interesting statement on the idea of like play as practice for solidarity. Yes. And I think that's this whole thing with the children too. Their sort of positive energy that they're getting from Klaus's toys is showing them sort of they're they're sort of modeling like good behavior the good socialistic behavior <laughs> yes uh yeah so that's cool and then G- magnus shows up and he is he is not happy about this but like every classic villain he's sorting becoming he's escalating and becoming more and more deranged 
as they get closer to releasing the voice in the mind, and as they get closer to the visit to Yuletide when the king is coming, you can see Magnus sort of devolve. He becomes like more animalistic, more primitive. He's got the cape. He's got the like hood on and his face is gone. And he's becoming more and more frantic and more and more disturbed. Yeah, and he starts calling uh, Klaus a revolutionary and a seditionist. And it is through his negative reaction to Klaus's positive actions that Klaus is turned into a revolutionary. Right. By, like, default. Yeah, and that's when we realize that, you know, Klaus was part of the guard. He was part of that sort of very moral, very upright, very straight and narrow, law-abiding culture. And he was driven out of that by Magnus. Yeah, and then we get a cut to the mine, and now people can start hearing the voice. And the person that we see who initially starts to hear it is Carl, and he's horrified because it's just this voice in the stone of the mountain shouting, free me, free me. And the way the text is rendered, it seems to be a, a tortured, inhuman voice. And he's Carl gets a firsthand look at the brutality of what's happening to the men in the mines. He watched it as a dude basically dropped dead from exhaustion. What do you think about Carl? I mean, he, like, he technically is Klaus's father. Yeah. And he turns on him and he allows him to be banished. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I think the thing with him here is he's like Klaus in that he's a good guy within this rigid system, but unlike Klaus, he sides initially at least with the system over his own morality where Klaus is our vision and no guy who sides initially with his own morality over the system and it turns out Klaus is right and Carl has to be brought around to Klaus's way of thinking right. and I think that that works really well because then the end of this issue is Klaus goes back to uh, Carl goes back to his house and Klaus is there and he's like hey you know that this is bad and I know that this is bad and I'm throwing a yuletide party and everyone's invited yes. <laughs> setting up for kind of like the last stand of the story and then we get a last page where uh, Magnus is coercing Jonas into writing a letter to Santa Claus in an attempt to lay a trap for him yeah and that's how the issue 5 begins then there's kind of like this weird full panel where it's like Klaus and Dagmar and he's got the giant sword. That's the cover. The cover? Yeah, it's the cover for issue four. Yeah, it's like a it's like Star Wars poster basically. Like this like fantasy poster where it's like young Klaus and Dagmar and there's like a shadowy Magnus in the sky above them looking down on them. So issue five starts. It's revealed that Jonas has written a fake wish to Santa Claus to lure him to coming so that he can be ambushed and then there's a scene where magnus shows up and he has the giant sword which i don't understand it's the lord's sword the lord's sword he and can he... lift it before now he can lift it there's like a symbolism going on here. what right yes i was gonna say that he's become more powerful and he has a sort of jokerish kind of like his mouth is really big and he's laughing yeah. and he's holding that sword up and that's when dagmar Dagmar's like, you're crazy at this point. She's basically like, there's no voice. You're crazy. You can't lift this sword. You're coming apart. Please, like, stop this and let us help you. And he's scaring Jonas. And, uh, yeah. 
So I mean, the, that's like the whole thing. And he, he's like just totally lost it at this point. And this is when he reveals that he has become convinced that the king is coming to kill him. Right. And he needs to release this thing to get enough power to kill the king before the king can kill him. Yeah, and then when Dagmar and Jonas flees, Jonas is actually wearing a Santa Claus hat. I mean, he has a red hat on with a white pom-pom. So Klaus naturally, in his will to help these children, falls for the trap. Yeah, but first he goes to the mines and frees everyone. And now he's just full-on wearing the... He, he knocks out a guard and takes his uniform. Yes. And now he's full-on wearing the uniform, which looks like a cool fantasy action version of a Santa Claus outfit. Right. Like yeah. the red and white. And he's got the big sack on his shoulder. Because he's delivering these toys. And he lights a fire in the mine to force everyone out of the mine. Because this is this is the start of his Yuletide party. Right. And then we get more more of, like, showing us just how, like, sad and deranged Magnus is now. Uh, where he's, like, he basically reveals to Dagmar that he's, like, aware of how much everyone hates him. And that he's using the fact that they hate him to justify being cruel to them, even though they only hate him because he was cruel to them before. And I think it's also, I mean, he can't stop himself now because he's in a full manic yeah. sort of condition where he just, it, things are just rolling along. Like he's right about to release this sort of voice that has been threatening, that has been like tormenting and seducing him. I'm so and, excited for the reveal of what the voice is. Yes, of course. So we see, so Magnus has a big sword, there's toys going down the chimney, uh, Klaus and Carl reunited at the ambush, and then there's a lot of fighting, a lot of action scenes, arrows. Klaus, uh, Carl is the bait at the ambush. Yes. Klaus shows up. He's an unwilling bait at this point because he is sort of tied up to a chair to look like Grandma sitting in a, in a rocking chair yeah. from behind. And we get this huge action sequence of Klaus running through the town. He does like an Errol Flynn slide down a banner on one of the walls with his sword. Uh, this kid shows up to help him. Who We've seen this kid. He hasn't been like identified, uh, but he's shown up like several times throughout the story. And his dad is one of the men who works in the mines. And he and his family help Klaus. They get, atta- they get accosted by the guards and Klaus flees with the kid into the woods because he needs to heal himself. Yeah, well, he was shot with a poison arrow. Yeah. That was the thing that leads him to. So the boy comes to the rescue, and then, dun, 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 the last panel. That's the cover of the next issue. Don't even, don't even reveal it yet. Is bananas. Uh, the, story, the issue just ends with them going into the, into the deepest part of the woods, and Klaus is like, oh, there's darkness. And then Magnus shows up and says that uh, they're going to proceed to the inevitable conclusion. Right. But I think what the the crux of what's happening now is that on the day of Yuletide, where there's supposed to be a town celebration, Magnus is planning to release the voice because the king is coming and he believes that the king is trying to kill him. He also wants to punish Klaus for giving hope to the town, but also for his previous relationship with Dagmar. Because he believes that even though Klaus has not been in the picture for many years and he has won Dagmar's heart, she did love him at one point and she says that. And his son, and they have a son together, he believes that in some way Klaus has planted the seeds of why his family doesn't care for him. Yeah. And so then the start of the next issue, uh, Dagmar and Jonas try to flee the castle. 
Right. Uh, this is when he's wearing the Santa Claus hat. Yeah. Klaus and the kid. What is the kid's name? Uh, Finn. Finn Mickelson. Right. And he's sort of like young sidekick that is kind of iconic in a lot of... Yeah. He's the Jimmy Olsen. He's the, he's the Robin. Yeah. Uh, he takes Klaus back to his cottage where he makes starts to make the... Um, the healing soup. The, yeah. The healing soup. But then... The guards show up and they shoot Lily with their burning arrows and then they shoot the cottage with the burning arrows and burn down his house and then, like, crucify Klaus on the ice. Just like his mother. Yeah. I like how right before this happens, the little boyfriend says, wow, this is great. You got a great house in the bars. You got a cool wolf. You can make healing. Why would you want to leave? And then two seconds later, it's like everything is destroyed. Yeah. And the kid, the kid flees. Right. Uh, or no, they, the guards get him and they have him like in a slight and they're going to leave. And the plan is to leave. It's a very super villain, stupid, like, uh, let's not watch the good guy die. But the plan is to... Leave him uh, strung up on the ice as his house burns, and that will melt the ice, and he'll fall into the the freezing waters and die. Yeah, because he's, like, beat up, and he's sick, and he's been poisoned. So then they sort of cut away from that, and you're like, okay, he's just going to die. Let's go on to the next part of the story. Ooh, and this is where it gets good. I mean, it's always it's been good the whole time. But so Finn gets put in a jail cell with all the other children who are being fed candy. Why? And they're like, it's good. It's a present. It's Yule time. And Finn's like, no, don't you understand? Why, why would the Baron ever give us free stuff? Uh, don't you see what he's doing? He's fattening us up. And yeah. the kids are like, isn't that good? And then it's like, why? What are they fattening him up for? What's happening? We cut back to the mine. Finn's dad's there. He starts freaking out uh, because they've taken his kid and they're forcing him to work. And he breaks through the last uh, little bit of the wall and frees the voice. And we just see this like massive red eye looking through a crack in the mountain, which is some genuinely horrifying imagery. Yes. And it's just saying hungry, free from rocks, free from books. Where are they? Where are they hiding? Where are the children? And we see a clawed hand reaching out of the mountain. I think the part where it says free from books is important. Because you realize that Magnus was using his grimoire to free this beast. Mm -hmm. But what he has done has sealed his own demise. Yeah. Finn starts working to get the kids out of the cell. The king and his guards show up and... Uh, Magnus has a feast. The king reveals that he has arrived. That Magnus is in a way kind of right because he has arrived to look into the situation uh, that is being reported about Grimsvig, which is that the town is being abused by their baron and that there are dark magics at work here. But then it's like Magnus was doing those things because he was paranoid that the king was going to kill him. And he has essentially, like you said, created his own... He's fulfilled the prophecy that he feared. Yes. But then the voice shows up and we get our first full image of it. And it is wreathed in fire and it is the Krampus. Yes, very clearly that's what, what he is. But also, I mean, we were talking about William Blake. He really has this sort of old-fashioned sort of 
Christian view of what the devil looks like. Yeah. You know, he has really long horns. He has a very angular face, long tongue, muscular body. His head is like a skull. They do the classic Krampus thing where, I think, right, where he has one hoof foot and one regular foot. You can't really tell because the hoof foot is frontwards and the other... Yeah, I guess it does. And he's got the sack over his shoulder. He's this long, slurpy tongue. And, uh, yeah, it becomes clear that they were fattening up the children to feed them to the Krampus. And he starts spewing fire everywhere. And he's like this horrible monster that's killing everyone. And, uh... Oh, and jo- Jonas and Dagmar get captured and return to the throne room for the feast. Right. And then the the Krampus is now coming for Jonas. And then this page, which is all dark and red, you turn the next page and it's all blue and sort of icy. And you see Klaus is still there. And even though Lily has been shot and she still has the hours in her back, she goes over to him. And then we see that the spirits, the spirit family is coming and they are working on Klaus and they're trying to heal him because they want him to make things better is exactly the command that they give him. And then you sort of see in all these different panels, you see like that his heart is growing and changing and the spirits are sort of beckoning him to come and to get up. And then you see this sort of crystal, it looks like a diamond and you see Klaus and this, and the sled and Lily. And then you see the sort of spirit family. They sort of look like spiders and they're weaving. Yeah. And they give him like three stones with different runes on them. Yeah. And we get this. This is, again, I think a lot of the imagery from the description of the machine elves. We see like inside their realm in like what may or may not be a spaceship. And there's these like impossible objects of like crystals and fractals and hypercubes. I also think there's an interesting thing where they say play. When the um, Shining family arrives to save him, he's about to get attacked by the other wolves. Uh, And they say, the Shining family shows up and they say, play in play our young, our young, our cause hurt, now must make better. Yeah, and I think that's them sort of, they have some kind of connection to the children. Yeah, and to the act of like play and creation... But also, I think it's starting to to hint that they may also have a connection to the Krampus. Yeah, and I think there's sort of, there's an interconnected sort of world that they live in. You know, good balancing evil or whatnot. And apparently evil is, it's unbalanced now because evil is stronger. And that's why they need Klaus to help them. And they use the runes to fix him. At the end end of the issue is them applying the runes to him and him screaming as the panels fade to white. Yeah, and then we see Jonas and Dagmar are trying to flee, and they're caught. Yeah, and then and the Krampus is gonna he's gonna take Jonas. He's screaming, "Children, greedy, bad children!" And sack and for sack and for supper, ju- juicy with envy, sweet and self centered. Here's one, and he grabs at Jonas, and then we get the reveal that Magnus's book is empty. And the the Krampus starts taunting him. Wait, that's in book seven. No, wait, are we not? This yes. One? We just got to the end of issue six. Ends with him being fixed. But we didn't talk about Klaus's upgrade. That hasn't happened yet. This is the last. The last page of is him six about, yeah. is him about to be upgraded. 
And then... We don't see his upgrade until he shows up in issue seven. So yeah. So So Finn, who's the boy who was helping Klaus in the previous issues, he starts to get the children to move them out of their prison because it's becoming clear now that the Krampus, like you said, he wants these children. And that's what he needs to feed himself after his long, you know, imprisonment. And then, yes, like you said, the panel shows that the grimoire is now blank. Yeah, and maybe it was always blank. And then Krampus starts to taunt him. He says, like, like Magnus is like, I command you, like, I freed you. And it's like, you can't command. Well, go ahead, try and command me. See if I do what you say. And he doesn't, it won't listen to him. And then it drops the the big bomb, which is... You're a weakling, a slave to a voice in your head. I'd use you to break free. There's almost this implication that, like, beyond saying free me, I don't think Magnus was ever in conversation with the Krampus. That everything else was in its head, and it preyed on his weakness and insecurities to make him invent this false narrative of himself as the hero and the Krampus as his savior, when in reality it offered him nothing and owes him nothing. Exactly. Well, I think Magnus also realizes that he he doesn't really have the sort of skill set that he needs to control such a large beast. And even at the time where he's about to be destroyed, he still believes that he can control this monster. Yeah. Uh, Dagmar gets her baddest moment where she shoots uh, Krampus with an arrow, which causes it to let go of Jonas who runs away and then runs into the other children. And then the Krampus comes for them. Uh, Jonas tries to plead with the Krampus to just take him. And he says uh, that he's, I'm a bad person. Take me and spare them. Uh, Which is very sad. And then the Krampus does, but it's not enough. It doesn't care that, that Jonas was willing to do something selfless. It's still going to take the other children. I think this is sort of the one, this is like the sort of, one of the best parts of the whole series is you see Klaus and he's flying on this. Oh, no, we're just skipping ahead. Because before uh, Finn's dad gets a badass moment, too, when the Krampus is about to take one of the other children, he jumps on its back and hits it with the pickaxe. Oh, right, which right. Which gives the children enough time to, free, to flee. But now the Krampus is pursuing Finn and his dad and his younger sisters. And then there's this intercut with them being chased by the Krampus are these blue everything's all red and on fire and then these blue panels of the bells ringing and then this two-page reveal that those bells are the bells on klaus's new sled which is being pulled by a fleet of white wolves <laughs> and he's it's like this crazy spaceship sled it's like in long this like um like arrow shape and it's flying through the air with lightning behind it and he's standing on the sled with lily with his giant sword yeah, and then he says, we may have to disagree, evil one. Yeah, the, the, the Krampus says, run forever, it's too late, nothing can save you from me. And he says that, and then he leaps through the air and stabs the Krampus in the chest. And the children recognize Santa Claus as the Euler niece. So he's so... And, oh, and Klaus says, open your eyes, monster, and face the end. But then he gets stabbed through the back by Magnus with the giant king sword. Yeah. Which I think is a very sort of, that imagery of like Klaus being stabbed with the sword and then sort of almost like 
gently like Magnus is holding him up and they're really close together and they're like touching but you know it's Magnus becomes Klaus's shadow in that image is that what you're getting at yeah it's it's sort of like they don't have a moment where they confront each other and they have this sort of realization that like one they both want the same thing which is Dagmar and Jonas to love them Mm -hmm. and that they're sort of in a, in some weird way raised almost like brothers and then they have this sort of separation there's really no reconciliation for them well i think the difference is magnus wants dagmar and jonas to love him klaus wants dagmar and jonas to be happy and but then lily runs in to try and save klaus and gets batted away by the krampus and then magnus has this big speech where he's like he says like you know, I saved you, Krampus. Like, give me my kingdom. Give me my crown. I want my wife and son to love me, which is very sad. And then Dagmar calls him out for, like, all the horror he's committed and, and allowed to happen under his watch. And then he's like, I, I did everything for you. And she's like, you killed my dad, hunted Klaus, and released a monster. Like, we're done, dude. Literally. And then he screams, you owe me at the Krampus, which just incinerates him and and takes uh jonas and the people are initially praising the monster for destroying the evil baron i think what's interesting there and after the next panel after magnus is incinerated there's a panel where dagmar is walking up to klaus and in the beginning of this series Magnus can't lift the sword mm-hmm. and then he gets powerful based on the energy he's getting from the Krampus and he can lift it and then he ends up killing well he thinks he's killing Klaus and then as the as the panels go on Dagmar walks up and she's just holding that sword she can lift it with no problem yeah and then she just gives it to Klaus he's like oh yeah I, I'm not dead uh, something happened to me on the ice yeah well it's like TBD <laughs> we'll talk about it later because I got I got shit to do the Shining family brought me to a house beyond the northern lights I can't be killed now I'm still not really sure what that means yeah like we'll talk about that later yeah, and then the Krampus touches the sled and corrupts it into the it and the wolves into these horrible monstrosities. And then he gets Lily and Carl to protect Dagmar from the mob, who are like baying for blood now after seeing Magnus be burned to death. And Magnus, with his last breaths, asks uh, Klaus and Dagmar to save his son, who is in the clutches of the Krampus. I think that I mean it's sort of hinted throughout the series that. The town knows that Magnus is the one who's doing these bad things, but by proxy, they're also angry at Dagmar and Jonas. And I think they're angry at Dagmar because she's oblivious to the bad things that are happening. Because she's so focused on her internal problems, she doesn't see the effects that it's having on the town. I mean, it's kind of an an abuse narrative, right? Like, she she lets the... She and Magnus have power over the town, and she lets Magnus use his power. To be cruel to the townspeople and she doesn't do anything in her arc where like Carl's arc throughout the story is like learning that sometimes you have to side with your morality over the rules. Her thing is realizing that like she has to do something like to stop these horrible things from happening. And I think like her arc is kind of completed when she shoots the arrow at the Krampus and then like fully comes in when she calls out Magnus at the end. And I think just like we know that, like, the madness that is infecting Magnus is changing the entire town, when Krampus touches the sleigh, mm-hmm. 
you can see him in the same way corrupt that very wholesome, awesome space sled that he has and turns it into sort of like a almost like a devil. Yeah, it's like this hellfire monster sled and these horrible, like twisted wolf mutants pulling. Right, and they have chains on them, and they're yeah. So then he takes off on the sled, and then Klaus, who's just at this point has had enough. This is the part that makes me cry. We talked about the mantle of immortality making me cry in the previous issue. This is the part that gets me because. Uh, the Krampus says, I'm gonna, I will bring, I'll bring you to the burning rim of space and eat you raw. He's talking to Jonas. Your father cast you in his image. And Jonas says, I know I was bad. I was spoiled. I was greedy. I know that now. But the Santa only brings toys to good children. And then very quietly, he's holding the, the action figure. And he says, and the Santa made this for me. And, uh, that's the part that really starts to get me, me tearing up. And the Krampus says, there is no Santa. Yuletide belongs to fear and cold, darkness now and forever, as all bad children belong to me. And then the next page is Santa running along the ramparts of the, is Klaus running along the ramparts of the castle. And he says, I say this. And we get like a panel of the Krampus pulling the sled, a panel of the sled taking off, a panel of Dagmar in prayer, and the howl hounds baying. And then Klaus leaping through the air to grab onto the hell sleigh. And he yells, there are no bad children. Right. Yeah, that's very dramatic. Uh, yeah, and then we get his final battle with the Krampus. And it rolls. And it ends with... Do you want to say it? My favorite. He says, ho, ho, ho. And then just beheads him. And like the... He, yeah, the Krampus's head is flying through the air. He's like spouting like lava for blood. Uh, it's also become clear in this conversation that the Krampus is like a dark reflection of the shining family or he's one of them that has like fallen into hate and despair and become this corrupted uh fallen creature yeah so then klaus rescues jonas and they plunge to earth in this sort of fiery meteor that crashes into the town and then when it crashes into the town it turns back into his wholesome sleigh, mm-hmm. and Klaus reunites Jonas with his mother, and he goes there with Lily. Yeah, he pulls a giant tree in, they throw a big uh, Yuletide party, there's a school sequence where it's like one party, but it's the page is split into four, and we see time progress through the years across the panels as like Finn grows up into a man and gets like married, and... Uh, Dagmar grows older, Klaus kind of doesn't because he's like an immortal remade by higher dimensional beings into an avatar of kindness and justice. Well, she becomes sort of like the benevolent queen and the town starts to prosper once again. Mm -hmm. And then Jonas grows into a kind and gentle man who's about to take over mm-hmm. the lordship after his mother passes away. And I like how they give her like a Viking funeral. Yeah. And then you see the little bird once again has come back, the motif. Jonas gives the repaired bird to Klaus as like a token from his mother. And Klaus is like, I'm going to go uh, spread joy throughout the world, you know. But I'll come back when it's dark and you need me. Mm-hmm. And then the last page is a one splash panel with Klaus like in the upper atmosphere in front of like a big uh, lens flare from the sun and that's the end 
I like, before we start talking about the overall concept, I like at the end of this version that we've read, there's all these different alternative covers for different events. And there's even one where he has a traditional Santa Claus suit on. Yeah, we get, there's a variance from a different, a lot of different artists. A lot of these are artists who have worked uh, with Morrison before. So we get like a Fraser Irving cover that's like really dark and brooding. We get a Chris Burnham cover where it's like, Santa from the beginning of this, Klaus from the beginning of the story with, like, the traditional Santa Claus behind him. There's a Coley Hamner one that's cool. That's, like, him being saved by Lily with the arrow in his shoulder. Uh, yeah, they're all really neat. There's a really cool David Rubin one that's, like, I think supposed to be him during the last fight with uh, Krampus where there's all these, like, crazy red energy tendrils around him. It's really, yeah. So I think that sort of gives, like, an added depth to the sort of richness of the different stories. Uh, so yeah, that is Klaus. The other issues, the other one-shots are cool, and uh, they're worth talking about. We might do another episode at some point in the future where we read, like, all of them that have been published by that point together. Maybe next December? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Uh, they do reveal, the. I think the one big hanging question is, like, what's up with the, like, Santa Claus, how does he deliver all the presents, is, like, that thing. The the reveal in one of the one-shots is that... After he starts spreading his work for a while, the parents start doing it too and like just giving gifts to the children. And then eventually he just retires from gift giving because he's inspired enough people to take up his work like collectively that he as an individual doesn't need to do it all himself anymore. I think that's also hinted in the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. The same thing happened. I really like that explanation. I think that really like is good and it works and especially works with the, the themes of this story in particular. I think it's also a very sort of easy way for kids to, when it comes to that point where they learn that Santa Claus doesn't exist and it's their parents, Mm -hmm. that that sort of makes it seem like there could be some kind of magic around. Yeah, it's like Santa Claus is acting through my parents by inspiring people to be kind and give gifts to each other on Christmas. I like that this was a sort of a story that was separate. It wasn't like... The Life's and Adventures of Santa Claus, where they had to go through, where Baum went through systematically to explain every Christmas tradition and how Santa Claus dealt with that tradition. I like this sort of, there was some nods to traditional Santa Mm. Claus motifs, but it was sort of... It sort of allows you, he builds the portrait of the character and then allows you to extrapolate out from that how all those other parts of the Santa Claus mythos would fit with this. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like... Those stories are kind of old-fashioned. Yeah. And, like, kids today are more sophisticated and they're looking for something more interesting when they're reading. And I think this sort of doesn't sort of pander to sort of, like, that wholesome, oh, they're such good kids, you know? Like, kids don't know, like, what it means to work, like, in a poor house or, you know what I mean? Like, they can't relate to some of the sort of historical parts of Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Santa Claus seems extremely outdated and old-fashioned, these sort of stories about, like, you know, living in the North Pole. And I like the the the, um, the North Pole thing here where it's like, it's not that he lives in the North Pole, but it says, like, the Shining Family's locus of power is beyond the Northern Lights in this kind of extra-dimensional space i always think about like when you were little and it was christmas time and your sort of thing was like 
you would see these TV shows and Santa Claus would be making like these little dollies and these wooden horses. And then like under the Christmas tree would be like a Nintendo. And you would kind of like, does Santa make Nintendo? Like, does he make GameCubes? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I remember. (laughs) Or like why, like the toys and all the like pictures, they were like open and under the tree. And, but then like when you got your Christmas presents, it would be like in boxes. Yeah. So I do remember being like five and being like, I figured it out how he does it. Wormholes. Exactly. Because <laughs> I had watched something on like the Discovery Channel about like space and I was like, ah, I see now. I think the like most, I mean, there's lots of moments where you regret things that you did as a parent, but I think one of the things that I regretted the most was this bullshit story about telling you that. Santa will bring you what you need and it might not necessarily be what you want as a justification for why we didn't give you what you asked for on Christmas, but we gave you something else. Yeah, but I mean, that worked for me. I don't know if that would work for every kid, but like, I got that. You're like, oh, okay, I guess I don't need a sword, but I do need a, you know, I don't know. I can't think of Magic trick kit? I got a lot of those. I was very into magic tricks when I was a kid. You were, but you were not very good at it. No, no, no. I was not good at them. So I was kind of relieved when the whole Santa Claus thing kind of was was not an issue anymore because it kind of cut. I sort of figured it out pretty early. Um, yeah. But that's what I, that's one of the things I liked about it. I also like the really large panels, and I don't know if that was sort of just, you know, being tired of all these sort of tiny microscopic panels from like sandman i like this sort of openness of like a full page design yeah well there was this we this is the most recent comic we've read um even sandman overture is from like two years before this uh but there was this movement i I don't i might be talking out of my ass but there's there was this movement kind of spearheaded by the uh works of this artist named brian hitch it was called, like, full-screen comics, which used a lot of, like, larger panels mm-hmm. and splashes to give things a more sort of epic and cinematic. That's a, I don't know if that's... It feels weird sometimes to use that word to describe comics. Look, and this is... I feel like it's not necessarily trying to ape that style specifically, but I definitely think the story... Panel-to-panel storytelling here definitely exists in a space that, you know, has come after and been influenced by that sort of full-screen... Uh, style. Whereas, like, Overture, even though it's a newer comic, is kind of hearkening back to that denser style of those earlier Sandman comics. And even kind of, like, ramping that up to an extreme. I also like the sort of, the Viking, the sort of medieval aesthetic that the town had. Yeah, it's cool. You know, and I like the sort of, like, the, there were some kind of nods to the traditional Santa Claus, like the red and white. But I also like the use of the runes and how the spirits were depicted. And the sleigh, like, using that, like, transforming it between good and evil, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, I like the, the with the runes and stuff. I, I think it's interesting to connect the Santa Claus story to this kind of pre-Christian mysticism, and then in turn connecting that to these sort of um, more modern ideas about, like, quantum physics and reality and different, like, dimensions, sort of... Build, sort of unifying all of those different ideas into this one concept and then building that ar- into a story that is about Santa Claus. Yeah. 
I mean, I really like my Santa Claus to be like delicate enough to create like mechanical toys, but then also like be able to like behead a Krampus if need be. Mm-hmm. I like that. I love the Krampus in this. I love Krampus as a character and a concept, and I I think it's really great having him here as the like opposite of Santa Claus and this like horrible, unstoppable demon, and really dealing with the fact that like the the whole. Krampus ethos of like let's punish the naughty children and put them in my sack and take them to hell is like genuinely horrible and genuinely horrific and really taking that to like its logical conclusion in making him this nightmarish monster. I also think that I mean like Santa Claus has been sort of co-opted by like this sort of Christian concept of what Christmas is. I mean, mm-hmm. he, I mean, he's considered non secular, but I mean, he's always like he's good and he wants children to be good. And I think like the life and times Santa Claus doesn't really have like an antagonist that can really like sort of come up to like on the same level as Santa Claus. Like his conflict with the you know the invisible creatures that Anguas Anguas. It really isn't like that's not a villain that's like equal to like the conflict between good and evil but i think this class and the krampus is a good combination but i think that because this sort of sanitized santa claus bomb santa claus is like a wholesome jolly person he doesn't have even like a dark side or a dark sad story i mean he's Mm -hmm. an orphan and he immediately gets adopted by like a nice you know uh yeah i think it's telling that um i i mean i like the live adventure of santa claus but it's telling that that is a santa claus story that almost really never except for the one part where the children get lost in the snow it doesn't deal with the idea of winter and with the darkness and danger of winter where so much of this story is about the light in the darkness and the joy in the cold of winter and like klaus is this shining uh you know, symbol of, of kindness and justice that is born out of the ice and escapes from a death in the ice and comes in the winter. There's this other, I meant to bring this up earlier, actually, when I was talking about the Morrison connecting Santa Claus and Superman. But there's this uh, quote that gets passed around a lot that I really love from Morrison that I believe he first said when he was doing like interviews to promote All-Star Superman, I could be wrong, where he... To sum up Superman, he says, uh, somewhere in our darkest hour, we, or no, I think it's somewhere in our darkest night, we made up the story of a man who would never let us down. And that's like what Superman is to him. And I think there's this realization that like Santa Claus is that too, very literally, because our darkest night comes in the Yuletide and like the winter solstice, we made up the story of this man who will never let us down who will always like deliver the presence and spread joy in this dark time and i think that's kind of the core of this story but i think what i was saying about krampus is that he's kind of like in a european um concept and i think this sort of yeah. americanizing of santa claus has like left that sort of dark side of the fl- i mean because like in in the mythology of what's going on, St. Nicholas is the good and Krampus is the evil. Yeah, he's... But I think in the American thing, it's sort of like Santa Claus is, 
he's almost like a cautionary tale. Like, you need to be good or your Santa Claus is not going to give you any presents. There's no flip side of where, like, if you're bad, Krampus is going to come and eat you up. Yeah, but I also think it's really good that in returning Krampus into the Santa Claus narrative, Krampus is framed very explicitly as being wrong. Right. So what do you think, how do they compare the Bond version of Santa Claus and Grant Morrison's version of Santa Claus? Uh, I like them both a lot. I think that there's a lot more in common than it initially appears, I think. Like, their conception of, like, what kind of person Santa Claus is is pretty similar. Just that, you know, Morrison Santa Claus will do some violence if and when he needs to. Uh, I think that Klaus, the comic, is a much more... Oh, It's much more of a story, you know? It's like a more complete narrative with, like, momentum and thrust and conflict... Whereas Life and Adventures of Santa Claus is just kind of this sweet collection of vignettes. Uh, I think, like, they're both really valid. I I would probably be more likely to reread Klaus just because it's just a snappier, more exciting read. But uh, I dig them both. I assume you like this one more. I did, because I think it's more modern. I felt like that was sort of old-fashioned, and it was kind of... The, like, construct of this story was to take the symbols of Santa Claus and explain how they came into being. Yeah. So this one sort of takes Santa Claus and the symbols and recreates them in a story. I feel like this would be more appealing to, like, modern children. Yeah, I think the idea with Baum wanted to explain Santa Claus. Like, what what's the answer to all the questions that children have about Santa Claus? Where I feel like this is... Uh, Morrison and Mora realizing that like Santa Claus is this incredibly iconic character that has survived through hundreds of years but he's kind of a character without a narrative and this is their attempt to give him a narrative yeah and I think this sort of you need to if you're going to show good you need to balance it fair and balanced with some type of evil evil and I think that this works out really well I think that, I mean, I was surprised that there was a happy ending because I didn't really think that they would kind of go for that. But I guess it is a Christmas story, so. Yeah, but I mean, it's like a happy ending where, like, eventually Dagmar dies and and Jonas doesn't, I mean, Magnus doesn't get, like, a redemption. He just gets, like, burnt to death because he's too far gone. Like, it's, it's not, it's a happy ending, but it's not an ending without consequence. I think that, yeah, it's really good. I'm I'm glad you liked it because my thought process with this is, like, well, if if you like this, then you'll probably like his other stuff. So, so do you want to give any hints about what we're going to be doing comic book-wise in the next year? Uh, I don't know. I still haven't figured out what our next series is going to be. I do know what we're doing for, for January, uh, which is... Next up is our next literary episode. So we're going to be... Instead of doing a novella, we're going to talk about two connected... Short stories. It's kind of a metafiction double shot. And so the first one we're going to do is Lost in the Funhouse by John Barth. Uh, you know, which is a very important story in the... Uh, the development of metafiction. Yeah, the development of metafiction. Modern metafiction. And then, so the other show we're going to do is Westward, The Course of Empire Takes Its Way. Which is from the collection Girl with Curious Hair by David Foster Wallace. Uh, which has a character who claims to be a character in Lost in the Funhouse. Yeah, and I think it's when people look at the sort of development of modern 
especially American metafiction, there's sort of a direct link between Barth and writers like David Foster Wallace. And I think it would be interesting to sort of explore what that, you know, there it's not very often in literature where there's pinpointed a specific short story that is considered the birth of a literary movement. Yeah. And when people talk about modern metafiction, John Barth is always mentioned and specifically that short story. It's kind of this and um, what's the um, Marquez story? The Old Man with Wings? That's right. not the actual title. It's something similar to that. Which is kind of pointed out as this sort of flashpoint for magical realism. But it's like you can go back before that and find lots of examples of things that you would classify as But I think magical it's interesting realism. because John Barth is important to metafiction. But he's not as well known. His contributions to literature in general are not as well known. So I think that's interesting. And I think there's also... David Foster Wallace is one of my favorite writers. And I think you can see clearly in a short period of time the influence that he has had on writers who are writing at the present time. So I think it's sort of the... His sphere of influence, which is very... I mean, he has a small body of work compared to some of the other writers, but the style of his writing is so important to modern writers. So I think it's going to turn out... I mean, I say this all the time, but I think he's going to turn out to be just as important to the metafiction movement as John Barth is. Yeah. Oh, and so the story I was thinking of, the Marquez one, is uh, a very old man with enormous wings. Right. Or un señor muy viejo con unas alas enormes. Which I guess is considered the sort of, like you said, the flashpoint for the the sort of genesis of the sort of movement of magical realism. Which ended up being a very important and very sort of pivotal literature movement i mean we see that a lot today a lot of modern fantasy is based on the works of marquette so i think that's interesting so from having fun talking about santa claus we're going to be moving into some more heavy sort of high concept discussion in january just the way you want to start off the new year with intense discussions about the symbolism of metafiction and so our comics episode for january we're also going to do two works two two short sort of shorter comics they're around like 50 pages both by the Norwegian cartoonist Jason. Uh, we're going to talk about The Left Bank Gang, which is a story about lost generation writers doing bank robberies. And I Killed Adolf Hitler, which is set in a world where hitman is a perfectly acceptable legal profession and a man is hired to go back in time and kill Hitler. I mean, I don't know what they have to do with metafiction but they both sound like something that david foster wallace would be really interested in yeah so those are both cool Uh, i'm excited to talk about those and so that's our episode i think uh spoiler alert stay tuned so do we say happy holidays or merry christmas we can say them both or don't let krampus get you yes happy holidays merry christmas beware the krampus and um that's it goodbye see you next year